we're in our last three sessions. Shocking to me anyway. But we're going to be talking about some things that are both theoretical and deeply practical over the next three weeks. And so hopefully that's been a way to describe what we've been doing the whole time. But I really want to get into some very practical, like, what does this mean on a day-to-day basis kind of stuff? But we're going to do it talking about love, at least for the next two weeks. And then in the last week, we'll talk about awe. So love and awe is our final themes here, but for very practical reasons. So this week and next week are going to be parts one and parts two. So depending on how discussion flows this week, we might save some of what I have planned for this week for next week and vice versa. But we'll see what we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, No worries on the cameras or the leaving or the whatever. I'm it's all good. You do you. Okay, so I'm going to bring up today's deck. And uh, all right, there we go. So today we're talking about work and love and the downsides or the potential even of doing what you love. It is a mantra that I've heard my whole life and certainly something that Gen Z is super geared to. It's definitely something millennials are super geared to, but I think that it's generationless at this point. The idea that it's an inherent good to love the work that you do and that it's a, it's not even an inherent good, but almost an imperative to do work that you love to do, to be passionate about your work, right? And there's a certain almost stigma around not having found your passion or not doing work that you're passionate about, which has a whole bunch of other connotations that we could spend a whole another hour and a half talking about. But we'll probably not avoid that today, but that's not necessarily on our agenda. So what is on our agenda? First, we're going to do a deep dive into the Marion Bull essay that I put in your recommended reading for this week. If you didn't read it, no problem. I will guide us through it. But I love this essay as like a first person description of the experience of kind of finding yourself falling in love with something that then turns into work. And I love how she's both very honest and transparent about her own feelings, but offers a more contextual view on it as well. And I think for that reason, it's a super valuable essay to really sink our teeth into and hopefully can brings up some additional personal context for all of us as well. And then we're going to talk about the Kathy Weeks essay. And Kathy Weeks is a political labor theorist who just has some really profound work around work. <laughs> she has profound work around the meaning of work, how work and the self interact and influence each other. And this kind of as this essay for Verso, I think, has some really interesting points around the idea of comparing romantic love to work love and how what we might learn from that comparison. And then toward the end, we'll talk about the passion paradigm, which is a sociological term that or it's a term that a sociologist came up with to describe the framework 
that we exist in today or the social framework that we exist in today where the passion for one's work is a kind of cultural and social value that we're expected to work toward and to incorporate into our lives and careers and and, uh, professions. So that's an overview of where we're going today. But I wanted to start actually with this Sylvia Federici quote that I plucked out of the Kathy Weeks essay. And Sylvia Federici is another political and labor theorist who was one of the original members of the Wages for Housework movement. And one of the sort of motivations for this concept of wages for housework is exactly this quote, this this simple idea. We want to call work what is work so that eventually we might rediscover what is love. And the reason that this was such a motivating force behind wages for housework is that women's, quote unquote, women's work was assumed to be this very natural very womanly, very, we do this out of love. This isn't work. This is love. And they're like, no, there's a lot of work being done here. And it doesn't matter how much we love our children, how much we love our families, how much we love our spouses. None of that's all important and relevant, but it doesn't change the nature of work. Cleaning a house is work. Caring for children is work. And if we call it work, then we can start to unpack that from something that perhaps is a truer expression or experience of love. And I, as someone who's very big on how language changes sort of how we see the world and how we see ourselves, I love this idea of naming work so that we can name love. Not that those two things don't overlap quite a bit, But having that language and being able to separate those things, I think, gives us a really interesting perspective on how we move through the world. With all that being said, let's dig into the complicated reality of doing what you love, which is an essay for Vox by Marianne Bull. And the sort of overall 411 on this essay is that she talks about how She was feeling really burnt out at work, really stressed out, and she, her therapist gave her the idea to find a hobby, like like the simplest thing ever, right? Find a hobby. So she started going to a ceramics class. She fell in love with ceramics and making mugs specifically. And of course, this is an expensive hobby. It also creates physical stuff that you have to store somewhere. And so it became obvious to her as she's going on that she needed to start selling some of these mugs or she needed some way to get mugs in the hands of other people. And she needed to pay for her studio time. She needed to pay for her supplies. And so selling made a lot of sense. But eventually ceramics became her full-time job, her full-time business. And so this essay is her kind of wrestling with that transition and recognizing some of the things that she's lost in the process of gaining uh, a profession, a, a stream of income, a stream of revenue that is ostensibly something that she loves. So I want to use this as a way to interrogate how the norms of the market and the norms of waged work and the norms of leisure 
all sort of coalesce to change the way we think about work broadly defined. So right off the bat, and this quote, this piece, this excerpt from the essay is actually about halfway through. But I think this point that she's making here is important for our conversation to kick things off. So she writes, leisure does not exist without work and is therefore defined by it. Even as hobbies gained popularity among the 19th century middle class, they mimicked the capitalist attitudes of the workplace from which they were meant to provide relief. Okay. Leisure does not exist without work and is therefore defined by it. And I, that, that sentence to me encapsulates this muddiness that today we feel around the idea of doing work that you love. Um, if what you love or what you do for fun or what is enjoyable and fulfilling to you is uh, in many ways defined by its lack of work, then how does the reality that it is work transform those activities? Um, and like I said, I think one way to think about this is by examining the norms uh, of leisure the norms of the market and the norms of waged work and how those things interact with each other. So I would define sort of the norms of leisure or three of the norms of leisure as being done in the in your free time. So that's being defined outside of works, right? So being done in free time, being done for personal gratification and being done for enjoyment. Those are three things that we think of when we think of leisure and when we think of the kind of motivations for it and what makes leisure, right? Then we have the norms of the market. So this is the place where goods are exchanged, right? Uh, broadly defined. The norms of the market prioritize the usefulness of something as its value. They pr prioritize aesthetic value. So not just how beautiful something is, but also how desirable it is for whatever cultural or personal reasons. And it prioritizes things that meet a need because exchange transactions happen typically around some sort of need. And then finally, the norms of waged work optimize for efficiency and productivity, optimize for work ethic or value work ethic, and strive for proficiency or strive for mastery. So if you think about I don't know, think about something that you do for fun. Think about something maybe that you consider a hobby, right? Just for me personally, um, let's talk, let's talk running, right? I'm a runner. I know at least one, at least one other of you is a runner, but I think working out in general, yoga would be another thing that I might put in this category, is something that a lot of us do for fun. And also do it with these other norms attached to it. So running, yes, I do in my free time. Yes, I do it for personal gratification. Yes, I do it for uh, enjoyment. But also running has use value, right? The activity of running helps me feel more energized. It helps me conform to body norms that are valued in the marketplace it has an aesthetic value in that I get to buy cool stuff for running. <laughs> and also running, again, helps me conform to aesthetic norms in the market. 
and it meets a need, which is moving my body, getting out in nature, listening to podcasts, like all of those things are needs for me that running help helps to meet. Um, but then even more running is tinged with the norms of waged work for me. Do I optimize for efficiency and productivity when it comes to running? Hell yeah, I do. What's the, what's the optimal workout? What's the most efficient way to train? How do I get the most value for the least amount of work? Totally a norm of waged work that I put on running and that I think most runners would say they put on running. The work ethic of running is baked into the practice as well. How many times a week do you run? How many miles a week do you run? How many races are you doing? What are you training for? There's that value of the work ethic when it comes to running. And then proficiency. How much further are you trying to get this year? How much faster are you trying to get? Are you trying to run a particular race? All of that speaks to proficiency as well. And so we have these, uh, oh, Ash says, and climbing is a good example of this too. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, basically, I, I would almost challenge you to think of something that you do for fun that doesn't have at least some component of the norms of the market or the norms of waged work attached to it. Um, work is this totalizing force in that it starts to co color the other things that we spend our time doing, which not only transforms our relationship to that thing, but then it also transforms our relationship and what we expect from work as well. I'm not 100% about this uh, mind map. I'll just totally be honest with you, but I'm trying here to paint a picture of work very broadly defined. And specifically, we're looking at hobby and job here, but also domestic work and relational work and other forms of work um, play into this whole um, paradigm as well. And then thinking about how the norms of leisure, norms of the market, and norms of waged work impact those varied forms of work. So not all work being done for money, but all of the kinds of work that we call work, working on a relationship, working on the house, housework, hobbies, the craft, like all of those things that we refer to as work. How did those three sets of norms play with each of them? I'm curious if as I'm talking through my example around running, if any of you have an example of something that you do for fun, do for leisure, but that you notice the norms of the market or the norms of waged work changing your relationship or influencing your relationship with that thing. Yeah, I might even go a step up on this visual because the thing that comes to mind for one of my hobbies is cooking, right? Which I see certainly not paid for it, but it ties very much to domestic and relational work for me. It's something I do for pleasure, but I'm aware that it helps me work on being a good mom and good wife in my view, right? And it also, I have to watch myself when I start attributing some of the norms of Am I being productive? Am I being efficient? Can I maximize food prep for three days? Is that continuing to be pleasurable? Is it continuing to be for personal gratification? And maybe it gets a little confounded sometimes. Maybe that's okay. I'm actually wrestling with 
even the distinction between hobby and job. I find that this whole conversation about loving your work is it's like one of the chapters I'm working on for my book. But I wonder also if I do something for pleasure that does help me become better at my job, like what, how do I wrap my head around that? Like all this stuff is messy, but I'm saying that even the hobby job thing feels hard for me to really cleave apart. And then the relational domestic work, they all seem to, I wish there were like a line that connected all these pieces for me. Yes. I almost put that line in and then I didn't because there were too many lines, but I agree. I wonder if it comes down to motivation because where I get, what is the improvement or the efficiency motivated by? Because someone put, you know, we can get to new levels in improv comedy or new levels at our job. And it, it's a, it comes back to a conversation we had about excellence versus mm-hmm. winning and achieve. Am I doing it because I'm just need to achieve and I'm so caught up in the I have to rise mentality? Or am I just, I want to get better at, I'm learning how to make herbal medicines right now. I'm just like, I just want to know how to do this. Like I just, and I could be, and I, I, I have a dozen or so herbs that I like, I want to become familiar with these herbs, but I'm trying, I have my motivation for it is then I'll be a master herbalist and I can sell my herbal medicines. And then I'll just know when I see these plants around what they're for and I can make some medicine out of them for my family and that feels good like it feels very simple but i in the past i could see how i would have been like i gotta learn the whole thing i gotta take this course i gotta get to this level and i think with work and with hobby it's like where's the where's the come from yeah are we trapped in the model or are we like just really in relationship with wow what do i want what feels good here yeah and I think to Nyla's part about the domestic labor and the relational labor too, there's, there is also that sort of schema of moving up or being the better parent, being the best kind of parent. I think of Sarah Peterson and Virginia Soulsmith just rolled out a limited podcast called Cult of Perfect, where that's exactly what they're talking about is this sort of expectation that we become more perfect mothers uh, particularly, and that sort of rise up the ranks. And the other thing that struck me, Julie, about what you said, too, is like, I think I don't want to I don't want to portray any of this as bad. I want to portray it more as these are things we can pay attention to because challenging yourself. God, I love to challenge myself. I'm constantly learning new things. I'm I do want to get better at all sorts of different things. Like the pursuit of proficiency and mastery doesn't have to be bad, right? It doesn't have to be a negative thing. And Julie, to your point, sometimes that desire to get better, do better is motivated by these ideas of promoting ourselves or moving up the ranks or achieving something for the sake of achievement rather than the enjoyment of challenge. Does that resonate, Julie? Anyone else? I think there's an interesting line for me personally between hobby and job, which is like, job fear feels real 
Mm-hmm. But fear of failure inside of a hobby feels, oh, I'm just flexing this muscle. It's fine. And there is even in that conversation, a little bit of pullover between if I'm flexing this muscle where it doesn't matter, I can flex it better when it does matter. But I, yeah, I think that's there for me. I think that's super astute. And I think it gets to one of the systemic level issues around this, which is the lack of security that we have, especially in the United States, right? The lack of healthcare, access to healthcare, lack of safety net, especially for everybody, but also especially for self-employed people, we literally have zero safety net. And so there is this real risk around work that produces our livelihood rather than work that produces fulfillment or meaning or joy. And that's something I think that is a real question uh, systemically and politically, like what could work, how could work be different and better if it wasn't so risky, if it didn't have that real precarity to it, that real risk to it? I I think I, I love that point. I will just add, if I can, I was going to say something totally different. And then that comment made me think of something, made me realize how the leisure and work overlaps for me. I get the same, I, I think I've gotten better at this, but often get the same feeling of guilt if I choose not to go to the gym or on a day or have not been practicing the song I'm working on in my voice lessons that I do if I don't work. If I'm just sitting around doing nothing or I'm like, oh, I'm too tired to go to the gym or I'm too tired to work. That's the same feeling. And one of those things is work and one of those things isn't. But it's the same feeling of I should be doing something, which obviously we know is super baked into our work culture here. So work ethic piece of this. And yeah, I really struggle with that sometimes. Yeah. I don't know what to tell you. I really struggle with that too. <laughs> but yeah, the yes, I love well, I don't love, but I really appreciate you calling out the guilt piece. I think that's a that's an interesting component that we might layer onto this. And I think maybe we'll get into that more next week. But I do think that these different norms bring up different forms of emotion. And that's always something to be looking at in ourselves, but also when we're working with someone else too, is, okay, you're expressing a particular feeling. You're telling me that you're having this emotional experience. How does that relate to what you expect of yourself in terms of work, in terms of challenge, in terms of productivity, in terms of action? And being able to make those connections for people, I think, helps to locate better where there might be some friction that they didn't realize there was friction in their approach to work. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, Ash says she's hearing to the lack of cultural permission to rest. Yes, we are going to, I'm going to get to rest when we talk about the passion paradigm for sure. Can I also say one more more thing? I think there's also a lack of a cultural permission to play, to Mm -hmm. not have to master everything. I noticed that in myself when I like, I have an interest in the Enneagram and I've been reading about it and I have to like speak to myself and say, Nyla, your job is not to like master this. You don't have to teach this. Just learn it because it's interesting to you. But 
it's the the productivity. This could be monetized. That kind of instinct to professionalize play is always something that I'm again. I, I don't know if you, it's broken. I just have to pay attention to it and rein it in. So it's same thing. It's like we can't rest. We can't play. We just have to work, work, work all the time. Yeah. Think about the number of consultants that sell play as a corporate strategy now. I don't know. I don't think that's any of you. If it is, I'm not calling you out. I'm just saying whether it's play or it's meditation or it's forms of exercise or it's play covers such a, a huge umbrella. But I don't think there's anything wrong with selling play as as part of a corporate well-being, employee well-being program. Um, and we have to look at like how these different ideas are being co-opted by capital to change our relationship to work. Because at the end of the day, that's what these things all do, right? Is they're they are in, informing and influencing our relationship to work. And in some ways, those things can be good. And then in other ways, it is a pathway to greater exploitation, which is where we're going to be headed throughout the rest of today. Okay, so coming back to the Marion Bull essay, um, she said that the suggestion from her therapist to find a hobby felt like an escape hatch, that maybe a hobby could free her from toil. She says... Cooking had once been the thing I did to relax when I got home from work, the thing I was curious about, the thing that distracted my brain from its standard litany of complaints. Puttering in the kitchen had once been a release, but now it was part of my professional life. It needed a replacement. I think that speaks to everything that we just were discussing. But I think this idea of an escape hatch is an interesting image to be thinking about when we think of what um, what we need from work, but also what we need from our quote unquote non-working time or our leisure time. And so I'm curious for you all how you think about the norms of waged work or the norms of the market. And I'm using these terms, but you all know what these things are. You, you sense these things, you feel these things in your own language how that turns our quote unquote escape hatches into toil, into work that is laborious and energy intensive in a way that's perhaps not as fulfilling as we'd like it to be. So we talked about this a little bit already, but I'm curious if anyone has additional thoughts on an escape hatch that either you need or an escape hatch that you'd like to find or an escape hatch that you've had that then has turned into toil? I think part of what's insidious about this is everything is a marketing opportunity. Ah, like, yes. That's, yeah, yeah. Enough said. I don't think there needs to be anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny when Nyla brought up cooking, I forgot that the example I was going to use was baking. Because that's been something that I've been really working on over the last few years. And this last year, especially just like most of my free time on the weekend is spent in some stage of a baking project and trying more and more intricate things and more steps and harder techniques. And I'm super, it's super fun for me. And 
I can't tell you how many times I've had to slap myself on the wrist and be like, okay, you can talk about this in an essay or two, but this is not a marketing opportunity. (laughs) This is just your weekend thing. So yes, I agree on the market. Everything is a marketing opportunity. And I think that might be an interesting little tangent for us to go on here too. What is your experience, anyone with wrestling with or uh, evaluating, navigating the need to turn all aspects of your life or the pressure to turn all aspects into your life into marketing opportunities? Yeah, just having an Instagram account. I have one for my company that I rarely have ever post to, but yeah, I'm like, oh, I should really take a picture of this moment from the weekend and post it. Shows what I'm doing and I don't know. So yeah, that's where it has come up for me is let's turn this really nice, meaningful lunch gathering or book exchange into something marketable. Yeah. It's particularly hard when I think in, for some of us, we are the asset of our business, right? I remember when I was doing my research on layoffs and one of the guys I interviewed gave me that language. He said the hard thing when he became an independent consultant, it was like he was the asset now. Like the intellectual property of Bain or McKinsey or those big firms is often their asset deployed by their people. Mm-hmm. But if you are the brand, if you are the body of work yourself, where it lives in you, it starts to feel like every action I take, everything I do is an opportunity to remind people of who I am and what the asset is shaping up to be. And so to your point, Rachel, a dinner is a way for people to get to know you. Uh, you go climbing, Tara. That's when I first met you. I was like, oh, she's the lady who climbed. It becomes part of your brand. She does hard things, right? I think that's what makes it especially hard for people who work as a service provider of sorts where our intellectual horsepower is the hello Winnie is the is the asset so yeah it's pretty messy and murky yeah I got distracted by your dog I had something to say which is not a problem I like being distracted by dogs what was it that I was going to say oh I know what it was so I think we're all familiar with this idea of life turning into marketing opportunities What I'm really interested in thinking about right now with that is how do current changes in the labor market intersect with that? So what I mean is how many companies are shifting from traditional full-time W-2 employment to independent contractors, right? So they're shedding their full-time employees, but they're gaining in multiple different forms, a host of independent contractors or a con- they're contracting with firms who employ independent contractors. And so there's this huge portion of the labor market that's being made independent, and that has all sorts of repercussions. But one of those repercussions is this need to be a personal brand a need to digitize yourself and your identity and everything that you do. And then that 
feet, what does that piece do? Sure, it, it can help you create a work relationship that allows you to maintain your livelihood, but it also is feeding into that same system that sheds full-time labor in favor of looser contract relationships, right? Because now we're putting ourselves into the machine. We're putting ourselves onto Facebook, onto LinkedIn, onto Instagram, onto TikTok. And that is data that then feeds the whole system, right? So that's something I think about a lot. I think that the shift to independent labor is really dangerous from an economic and, and social perspective for as liberating as it can be and has been, I think, for all of us in one way or another, it's also super dangerous. And I, I, it's one of my biggest kind of systemic causes of concern when I think about the future of work. Yeah. Sorry, Ash, that was bad. <laughs> but yeah, the, that's one of the, the places that I think about, too, in terms of personal branding. I'm thinking uh, about, sorry, just like no real quick, chasm that I'm very acutely aware of, which is the whitewater kayaking community. Mm. And this used to be very much just like service industry folk that would run rivers and raft guide in the summers. And that was just a thing that that's all you'd find there. And over the last five years, all of these contractors for these bigger companies have moved into these whitewater kayaking communities. And because they have better resources and a stronger brand have been pushing out the people who were originally there. And I'm not saying that's bad. That could be like a natural thing. But I do know that the people who left corporate jobs to then contract for corporations are better set up for the risk of if they're injured on the job it's yeah it's just it's created this really interesting murky paradigm between the people who have done kayaking because it's like a thing that they love and then the people who used to do kayaking as the thing that they love that's now turned into another opportunity for work for them because they have the freedom to do so it's almost like the inverse of what the inverse of security like they have so much security in their contract work, but then they're pushing out labor for the people who showed up into that industry because they loved the work. Well, now it's my turn to say, ooh. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. I need to think more about that. That's fascinating. Yeah. And sad, and but fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, the whole the work from home, remote work, contract work, that all that whole ecosystem is fascinating. It's completely changed the labor market or the not the labor market. It's changed that, but it's changed the housing market where we plan to go after my daughter graduates from high school, which is western Montana. And really all of Montana has or anywhere that any kind of concentration of people live in Montana. Mm -hmm. The housing market, the real estate market is just bonkers and in a way that's not sustainable for the local economies as they are. Yep. Yeah. And I will say like the town that I lived in and that this is really happening and it's an hour away from Portland's White Salmon, Washington, but oh, yeah, Portland, Oregon. But that housing market has been its own like crazy boom because it's protected on so many sides by like natural scenic preserve and this that and the other thing so then it's a denver situation where they can only really build up yeah it's 
I don't know. It's a very interesting, complicated, all the things. But in my mind, like that area of the world is veiled 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Like in the boom and the locals are being pushed out. And I just, yeah, because I'm very intertwined with the whitewater kayaking community, that's the chasm that I see it in most acutely. Yeah. It's, an, it's another form of gentrification, right? Yeah. Yeah. I read a book about gentrification earlier this year called The City Authentic. If if you're interested right. in this particular mechanism, it's a great, great book. Some really specific, strange geographical detail stuff, too. But the overall theory and concepts in it is are fascinating. And he's really he's looking at this cycle of producing, quote unquote, authenticity as a, an economic engine for these areas that gentrify. And I think that's exactly what you're describing. Or I think that's what you're describing. And based on my knowledge of white salmon, which is not as extensive as my knowledge of Hood River, that's the the process that I see there too. All right. For sure. Yeah. Let's dig into the next bit here. Uh, oh, the book was The City Authentic. And yes, Bend would definitely be a similar situation for sure. Okay. All right. So now we're getting more into the the market aspects of uh, Bull's essay. And the 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 line from this essay that always just grabs me is where she says, untangling the question of what I want to make from what will sell feels like crawling out of a very deep well. Untangling the question of what I want to make from what will sell feels like crawling out of a very deep well. Now, I think that there's an interesting business way to interpret this idea and, and think about strategy and product and marketing. And I'm less interested uh, in those questions in this context. But what I am interested in with this idea in this context is how are your perception of the market, what's valuable, what's not valuable, changes our relationship to work in general. In Bullshit Jobs, David Graeber talks about how work that is really socially, culturally valuable, work like teaching, care work, all of those kinds of things are paid so very little, even though they have such great social value. And because of that, the those that sort of mechanism of the market changes how we see the work those people do and changes how they see the work that they do, right? That's something that that is gets internalized. So around this idea, I'm curious if any of you have thoughts on how your perception of the market, whether it's as a consumer or as a producer, change your relationship to work or how you see this play out with the people you work with. I don't know if this is particularly applicable, but I have been tangling with this question personally for two years um, since I put my podcast on hiatus. And it is very much the balance between creative, interesting work that I find really satisfying and interesting and rejuvenating and all of those things and the 
CFO side of my brain that said this didn't, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to bring clients and it didn't do that. And now coming back into, I really want to do this thing. My brain is telling me you can't spend time on that because it doesn't produce enough value to the business. And so I feel like I'm constantly, I'm stuck in this loop of, I really want to do this thing. I really enjoyed it. It was so creatively satisfying. It's so interesting. And how can I make this thing that I want to do match up with what my business needs it to do versus being able to just say, this is a fun, interesting project. And so I don't, I clearly don't have an answer. I've been in the loop for (laughs) two plus years now. But it's something that I can feel intensely. Every time I think about doing creative projects, I end up in this loop of do I make the thing that I love or do I make something that isn't exactly the thing that I love? Can I modify the thing that I love to make it make financial sense or make marketing sense or bring value to my business? Yeah. It sounds to me like the question is how many... Uh, bus stops away from making money, can your creative work be and still be justified? Yeah, I feel like I have to justify it. And it could theoretically, I tell myself like, oh, it could just be a hobby. Like you could just do this as a hobby and yada, yada. But there's, it takes so much time and energy and effort to do it that I have a hard time justifying even to myself the that output when there's so many other things that I feel like I need to be doing that um I don't know it feels hard to justify spending all that time energy effort money resources um on something for fun yeah I would love to hear from other folks too who work maybe more closely with the uh, with a more traditional corporate structure than I do in terms of what the pressure of justification is like for the people that you work with or in your own work, the justification around money piece. I'm thinking more about like organizations that I've worked closely with in the past, say like Creative Live, where 10 years ago, there was so much money flowing that they could justify anything, right? There were no number of bus stops away from financial reward that couldn't be used to justify whatever they wanted to do, right? And then that money started to slow down five years ago, then it dried up completely, and then gone, right? Now. And so anything that happens under the name Creative Live now has to be 100% justified by a particular amount of revenue that it can bring in. And that has, not only has it changed the nature of the organization, but it changes the nature of the work that everybody does there as well and how they think. And it's been really fascinating to essentially be be with an organization from start to finish, Um, along with other people who have been there from basically start to finish and watch how their relationship to that work changes based on uh, pressure from the market. Anybody in that sort of more corporate, more traditional organization 
paradigm where they feel that justification, don't feel that justification. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just curious. Well, a, a lot of our clients are like Fortune 100, and there's been major withdrawal from doing anything for the sake of doing it versus there being some kind of return on it. And it's super disheartening. <laughs> but, and I don't know whether that's just cyclical at this point in time, mm-hmm. but I've just seen that, like you said, especially in the last five years, uh, change quite a bit. Um, Tara, I don't yeah. mean to flatten it, but like, how is this not just directly related to how much time and money people have? Because I know that when I stopped, when I paused my business like a year ago, mm-hmm. my whole detox process was like, can I just do my hobbies? Can I plant my garden in a way that just isn't aggro? And it's just like, it's, I'm working at it. I want to plant things. I want to hurt any food. Like I'm motivated, but take it out of the, I have to do that to as many things. I have to do four plantings and maximize the whole garden. Like I had to detox from that pattern. But once I did, and I had a lot, many months not working, I got to the point where I can do, I finally, it took a while, sunk in that I can do what I want for the heck of it. And I stopped being so damn goal oriented about every fucking thing in my life because I had time and I'd given myself, we had, I had a cushion of money. Right. And mm-hmm. so it just always comes back to this like universal basic income people can't make. And so we get, and I know we get to make choices within that. Like I totally hear that. And that's like why we're here to navigate that. Mm-hmm. But I just, I can't help, but just from my own personal experience, I stopped maximizing everything when I didn't have to. And now I'm starting to work again and I'm just really watching that, right? I'm, I have a consulting gig and I'm working like eight, 10 hours on that week. And I'm watching, you know, I'm just like watching where other stuff is getting squeezed and I'm just slowly easing back in and trying to bring with me this other mindset that I cultivated after a pretty long break, honestly, like it really did take a while, but I don't know. That's been my experience. Yeah. Now, the garden, whatever. This is fun. I'm just going to make the medicine for the heck of it. I don't need to sell it. I think that you're 100% right. And I want to complicate it a little bit, too, in that the conversation that I had with, why am I blanking on the name? The money Zen woman. Her, I. This is really bad. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I have to look it up because it's going to kill me. Um. Just a second. Let me go to my own website. Manisha Takor. I didn't actually have to get it. It came to my brain. Manisha Takor. The big insight that she had that led her to making a lot of changes in her life was that she was in the midst of striving for more when she already had more than enough, like way more than enough. And I think Julie, to your point, like I said, I think you're 100% correct that having that cushion of safety helps us release from that, like having enough helps us release. But sometimes we don't know when we have enough. I think a lot of people don't know when they have enough. I have certainly gone through many times in the last 15 years of not knowing when I had enough that actually fueled 
the striving and the sort of market orientedness of my thinking. Rachel, I saw you were unmuted. I already can't remember what I was doing. Okay. But no, I think I am, I feel conflicted sometimes and just, I'm, I'm not going to try to center this, but I started a company 10 years ago that's a collaborative in, of independent contractors. And part of the reason people are pulled to this is because the systems don't serve them. Mm-hmm. For example, I have a, a single mom on my team who can consult 20 hours a week, making more than she did working 40 to 50 hours a week. And she can homeschool her autistic children at the same time. But why does that work for her? Because the system is failing her. We shouldn't mm-hmm. be failing a mother to be able to care for her autistic children in a school setting. So it's just, it's so oniony, like those layers. It's, and I'm not, I don't really have a point to this, but it's just like things I'm thinking about as y'all are talking about this. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great e- example. And also awesome that you have a business that allows for that to happen. That's so great. And I think we're going to get to compromise here toward the end, I think. But I think as we're considering what compromises we make in our own work, how we help other people make compromises, like those are the things, those are the problems that we can be solving for. When we say, I value solving this kind of problem, that gives us a platform to build out a strategy that actually allows to solve for that problem, right? But until we can address and say, this is a solvable problem, this is a compromise I can make, this is a choice uh, of a strategic choice of how I want to build my business, how I want to do my work, whatever it might be. But we have to be able to identify that is a variable that we can solve for if we want to solve for it. And so to bring it back to this market idea, The market is always trying to get us to solve a very particular type of equation, right? And that equation revolves around profit. It revolves around sales, around marketability. And that's understandable, right? That's the market's job. That's not some inherent evil. It's just that's what the market is. But that's only one system of logic that we have to use. There are multiple systems of logic and there are multiple variables that we can solve for. And so for me, now tying it back to this larger conversation around loving work, love is one variable that you can legitimately solve for with work. But there again, there are other variables and those other variables should be just as valid. And the problem comes when they're not. All right. I think that we covered this idea of work ethics. So I'm going to skip over this one. But again, if you didn't read the Marion Bull essay, I highly recommend it. It's not a super long read. It's just 10 minutes or so. Um, and it is so insightful into this process of taking something that we do for personal fulfillment, turning it into work, and then wrestling with what that means for our relationship to work as a whole, and then our relationship to that activity as well. So coming back to the Sylvia Federici quote, we started with calling work what is work so that we might discover what is love. And with the Marion Bull essay, my brain goes, we want to call work, call what is work so that we can call leisure what is leisure. And I I think that's an important piece too, in that we all know that work is this super broad thing and that work is something that 
has a relation with everything that we do, but that doesn't mean that we can't define leisure in and of itself as opposed to just the cessation of work. All right. So moving on to Kathy Weeks and her comparison of work love and romantic love. I don't want to spend too much time on this because this is getting into some really gnarly theory territory. But I think there's a few things here that are very useful on a very useful, very applicable when dealing with ourselves or with those we work with. She uses a feminist critique of romantic love to tease out three key things. First, that women are socialized to believe a good life hinges on finding romantic love. And I think this is truer. And she would say the same thing, too. It was truer pre-1970 or so. But we all know it's still true today, right? Like, it's still true. (laughs) So women are socialized to believe a good life hinges on finding romantic love. She quotes uh, Simone de Beauvoir talking about how for men, love is part of life, but it is life itself for women. And then third, because of that, because women are socialized to find, to believe that a good life revolves around finding romantic love and that it is the essence of life, women actually come to desire their own subjugation. Because again, pre 1970, 1980, 1990, the institution of marriage was literally an institution of subjugation, right? If you can't get a credit card without your husband's signature. I don't know what to tell you, but that's subjugation. Um, And now it's maybe more metaphorical subjugation or a kind of a looser form of subjugation. But I think that that because of the socialization piece, there is still a sort of natural hierarchy to the institution of marriage, uh, again, especially in the United States. Um, So This idea of coming to desire one's own subjugation is then reflected in work love, in workers coming to desire their own exploitation, right? So if we're socialized to believe that a good life hinges on finding your passion and loving your work, and that loving your work seems to be a good coping mechanism for all the stuff that is not great about work or the work environment and the work relation, then of course, we're going to come to our jobs that we're supposedly passionate about, that we supposedly do with love and accept whatever exploitation then is put on top of us. So whether that's low pay, whether that's inflexible or overwhelming schedules, whether that's not being valued in a way that's commensurate with the output of our work or just being valued as individuals in the first place, that all becomes this sort of self-perpetuating cycle. Um, Where do I, sorry, I'm relocating myself in my highlights. So she talks about the imperative to love work, the imperative to find happiness through work and doing work or working as a form of self-love. She talks about that as that corollary to romantic love and that idea that this is our duty and this is a good thing and being happy at work makes us happy people and all of that as a form of desiring our own exploitation or makes it possible for us to desire our own exploitation. I'm curious 
where you all see this. Where do you see this cycle of if I love my work, then it's okay that, right? If I love my work, I can suck it up about this other thing. If I love my work, I can excuse this way that I'm being mistreated. I was going to give you a couple of minutes, but Rachel, if you've got a thing, please jump in. <laughs> and I think, I think this is what underpins the whole quiet quitting after the pandemic in some ways is Ooh, that yeah. the idea of, I love my work. So my body's going to be in a cubicle in an office tower somewhere. I love my work. I'm going to work through the weekend or work even if I'm not feeling good because it's my work and I love it and I'm tied to it. I just think we're in a really interesting time right now with how people are feeling about work. Yeah, especially for me, I made the choice in 2011 to remove my body from a corporate office. I was done. And fortunately, I, I was in a job that no one else wanted. And so they're like, oh, yeah, you can keep your job and work from home. But but yeah, it's just interesting to me. But I think those are some of the ways anyway, I've seen people saying no more. Yeah, Julie. And then I think there's a it's even worse in some ways in the nonprofit world because there, people are also played on for their commitment to social change or service or whatever it is. And people are really willing to take pay cuts in service of doing work they love that feels meaningful and good in the world. And I worked in the nonprofit world for almost 20 years and still relate to it a lot. And I don't know, I don't know really many nonprofits where people are hurting, where they're not, they're not burning out and they're not getting paid enough. Like both. And people stick with it because there's, there, it's such a strong value. And my first job out of college I worked for a nonprofit that paid us like $18,000 a year, not even a living wage in Washington, D.C. And no, they, I was guilted. Literally, I was told that it was like a, it was almost like a murder job. Really intense. It was like when I wanted to leave two, three years in, my boss like gave me hell and told me how I'm not committed to the cause. The culture was so vile. And that's an extreme version, but I think that general vibe through the entire nonprofit world and people are they're willing to do it for the meaningful good work which yeah. is making up for capitalism's massive gaps 90 proof of the time like social services that are provided for people yeah 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 and i think there's the agency that we bring to the relationship where we can say, I'm working the weekend because I love what I do and I love my work and I love my job and I love the mission of the organization. Um, but then we also have to recognize the way that narrative is actively used to control workers as well, right? So if your boss or your soon-to-be ex-boss is giving you a hard time for leaving because you're not committed to the cause, that person who probably doesn't believe in exploitative labor is actively participating, is actively complicit in, I don't, can you be actively complicit? No, I think you're actively participating or you're complicit in the using this paradigm of work, love, labor of love ethic that as Sarah Jaffe calls it, 
to control your behavior and to get additional work out of you, to get additional energy out of you, get additional affect out of you for the purpose of the work. I'm Jamie, I don't want to put you on the spot if you're still here. Yeah. Yep. I was about to jump in. <laughs> Go ahead. What are you going to ask? No, I just wanted to know if you had any comments. Yeah, 100%. I agree. I Yes, this is a pet peeve of mine too, not just in nonprofits specifically, but in like mission-driven work in general, anything with a social mission. Definitely. And yeah, the irony of these organizations that are like trying to make the world a better place, but won't bother to start with their own employees and by treating their own employees, like paying them well and everything. It's just so ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. I think I'm glad you said that, Julie, because definitely like I think it's so closely tied this idea that you're doing good in the world to this idea that you should love your job and how easy to exploit people that makes how much easier it is to exploit people when that's the case. Yeah. And I also want to say to the broader I want to take this opportunity to the broader question to in the safe space, one of my things is I guess I'm just so skeptical of people who say they love, especially people at jobs. And mm. I feel like when you're self-employed, I'm a little more believing because you've chosen. A, yeah, you've chosen a little bit more. I'm just like all these people who are like, yeah, I like my job. Yeah, totally. When they're like working crazy hours, it's bleeding into their weekends. They're constantly talking about how so-and-so is being so difficult and then so-and-so is also being difficult and they're managing all this nonsense and they still claim to love their jobs. And I'm just, I'm just skeptical and wonder to this point, I think, is like how much of that is actually just them justifying all of this to themselves and either choosing or failing to have the imagination to picture something different. And because it would be too hard because it is hard to picture yeah. something different system. Too hard, too identity shaking, too yes. risky. Yeah. Yes. And so Weeks talks about how this labor of love uh, or work love ethic is uh, a form of self-preservation. It's a form, it's a coping mechanism, right? If we can tell ourselves, I love my work then we can excuse the ways in which we're controlled or manipulated or exploited. Um, and we can see the ways that we exploit ourselves uh, or do the go above and beyond thing to go back to the quiet quitting piece. We can justify those pieces as I do this because I, I do this because I love it. Right. And we don't have to be critical of whether those two things can uh, need to coexist, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah, I think the the self-preservation piece, I think, is a really key one, especially in working with other people, too. Like, it's one thing to recognize it in yourself, and it's another thing to have someone sitting across from you, or if, if it's on Zoom or in an office or wherever, and be able to start to identify, all right, what is the self-preservation? preservation mechanism that's happening here? And then how do I navigate that to help them get to the point where they're a little more comfortable starting to question the identity piece or the risk piece or the 
yeah, just like their place in the world or their belonging in an organization, because those things are such risky things to reevaluate, right? And so I think it's, yeah, like I said, I think it's super important to identify that self-preservation stuff that happens in the back of people's minds, happens in the back of our minds, my mind too, and carefully unwind that. Whether it's just asking for more stories or it's asking someone to describe how they feel or asking them to describe using their imagination to describe what ideal work might look like and then pressing them on that a little bit because most people have no imagination when it comes to work because it's better for us not to, right? And so that to me is one of the core pieces of helping someone unwind their relationship to work. Any other thoughts about that self-preservation piece today? Yeah, blue pill or red pill? I think I'm curious about, and Nyla and I talked about this a little bit last week when we jumped on a call, but there's like this impetus to constantly be reinvesting in your business. Mm -hmm. And the reinvestment strategy usually requires more work so that you can pay yourself more. But then it's like this, it's the growth mechanism, but it's also, I think, the security of if I'm investing in my business that I'm less likely to fail but you probably wouldn't need to be building out so many layers of business if you were just, yeah, it gets a little tangled. But I'm definitely in a place where I'm like peeling away the support systems that I have that I don't feel like I need, that I feel like I invested into because of this self-preservation model. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it feels real risky. To be like, thanks, no thanks for your support. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're describing, so there's this idea of the belabored self that a theorist named McGee developed around self-help literature, this idea that we always have to be working on ourselves, always improving ourselves, and that is a self-preservation mechanism. It's a growth, it's a, a growth strategy, all of these things as they relate to our work and relationships. And so what I jotted down as you were talking was you're describing the belabored business, right? Like always be working on the business because that will keep you safe. Always be improving the business because that will keep you safe. But what ends up happening, which you're describing, is you start to take this maximalist approach to building and growing your business where it's constantly adding new things onto the pile when a much more, much safer, much more profitable, much more like caring way to build a business is stripping away, right? If I'm working with someone on a small business, it's what are the least number of things that you can do to make twice as much money as you're making right now? Because that's how you grow a business. It's not adding things on. It's taking things away 99% of the time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to thinking more about that. Rachel, I saw you Oh, yeah, yes. this this was just reminding me of, I think, it, I can't remember when you wrote it, Tara, but about going from seven figure to eight figure. And I was in the Rachel Rogers Hello 7. Mm. And I got to the baller level. I'm a baller. And Is that really a I thing? Just, no one's told me about ah, that before. Oh, oh no. my gosh. It's a whole thing. And I just hit a point where I'm like, 
and disengage from this. Like it just, I don't know, but it's, it is that kind of whole thing. And yes, I see that I'm not the only survivor of the culture. So anyways, well, it's hilarious that there's so many of us who are like recovering from that. That's what Ash and I talked about last week too. Just getting swept up in the more war, I call it yacht culture. And it's the whole thing for me, the construct's so broken. Like, why is love the thing I'm chasing from work anyway? What makes it love? What makes love the attribute that I'm supposed to get from that? What about something like meaning or impact or something totally different? But and I say this all the time. As someone who perpetuated the scenario, as a business school leader, this was my fucking like my promise, right? Like, you we totally were like, if you find something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. You guys are, you would be. Now I just get embarrassed by the things that came out of my mouth, right? That we yeah. were perpetuating that work is salvation. Work is, you figure this out, the rest of your life will fall in place. Not only that, because you guys are going to be like captains of industry. You'll have the means to not only change your own life, but to change the, it just, it's so mortifying in retrospect, but we always dangled love. Their whole class is about finding your passion. And so that was going to be the salve for the world's problems or your problems. And if you couldn't figure it out, that's because you weren't looking hard enough or you weren't doing the inner work or the whole thing just makes you want to hide for a day. But then I'm going to fight. I'm going to hide first. Yeah, that, that's fine. Then, then I'm going to fight it. That reminds me, and I should have thought about that this before this week, but that Reminds me perfectly of John Oliver's segment on McKinsey from a few weeks back. If you have not watched the last week tonight with John Oliver segment on McKinsey, it's on YouTube. You watch it for free. It's nice to see it, at least for me, it's nice to see it in a sphere that I don't work in because the exact same stuff happens in small business world to an independent work world too. But to just be able to look at it from afar and be like, oh, you McKinsey people are complete schmucks was delightful. But the way he weaves together the mission, purpose, doing what you love piece with this incredibly corrupt and self-dealing corporate culture and profit making is just chef's kiss. And if you've enjoyed today's conversation, I guarantee you, you will love that segment. It is brilliant. He is wonderful. He is my inspiration. <laughs> okay. So that actually brings us to a perfect point. We'll talk more about this next week. Like I said, there's a ton of overlap from what I had planned this week to next week. But I wanted to bring us to this point today of talking or, or of starting to see the passion paradigm at play and everything you all have described um, as being part of, being embarrassed by, detoxing from all the, I love all the different language we've used, is the passion paradigm. So this was studied and coined by a sociologist named Lindsay De Palma. 2019, I believe, is when she published the work on this. And what she did was study a group of engineers, nurses, and graphic designers. And I think that's a really interesting, it's a really interesting cross-section of people and brings in a whole bunch of motivations of why you get into a field and how you get into a field and also 
than how you have relationship with that work once you're in it, that I think a lot of the work around the future of work doesn't see as well. So I think, you know, who she studied here is important. Um, but she essentially came out of the the research with these with three uh, takeaways of what the passion paradigm is and how it impacts our relationship with work. And the first one is that doing what doing work that you're passionate about is more important than material benefits. So it's more important than getting paid well. It's more important than having health insurance. It's more important than having a steady paycheck, whatever it might be, right? Any of those material benefits of work. What she found was an overwhelming like 80 plus percent of the people she surveyed believed being passionate about your work was more important than material benefit or even what you're good at, which I think is strange, but <laughs> that we'll leave that one to the side. She also found that in the way that people talked about their work, that they uh, the way they expressed loving their work was uh, part and parcel with it being a form of self-care. So loving your work allowed you felt like taking care of yourself. It allowed you to find the energy and the strength and the joy that you needed to feel good about life. And then finally, doing what you love helps you keep going. So she talks about how the feeling of love and happiness and enjoyment in work is a renewable resource, right? There's always something more to be tapped into. We don't think about love. Love is never finite, right? There's always more, right? And so if that's the case, if there's always more love to give, then that also means there's more time and there's more energy and there's more resources to put into your work. And so as we close out today, I want to introduce just three very obvious but three very important flip sides of these three findings. And that is, first and foremost, that all work, no matter how much you enjoy it or love it or are passionate about it, deserves fair and reasonable compensation. You all have echoed that throughout this conversation. I know that we all believe this. And it is something that needs to be explicitly said over and over and over again, especially with the people that we work with. Second, that work can be fulfilling, but we also need other forms of care, whether that's self-care or perhaps more importantly, community care, family care, interpersonal care, and all of all of that entails. And then finally, doing what the flip side of always having more to give is that all work requires rest and recharge. There is no amount of loving your work that substitutes for a good night's sleep or a vacation or a holiday in which you don't check your email, right? I don't care how much you love your work. If you aren't resting and recharging on a regular basis, you're, you're not living fully. And that is a problem. That's, yeah, that's where I want to leave it for today. Where we'll start next week is with the idea of how do we want to compromise? We know that we live in a system that puts all sorts of obstacles in front of us, institutional obstacles, systemic obstacles, economic obstacles. It shapes what is possible currently in the realm of work, but that doesn't change what our needs are. So how do we compromise 
when it comes to what we need from work and how do we disconnect enough from current work culture to be able to say, these are the things I need from work and I'm going to do my best to find work that allows me those things, even if I have to compromise on something else. So that's where we'll start next week and, and then we'll dig further into this idea of doing what you love. Questions, comments, thoughts before we close out? I just wanted to say, as Ellen, I'm listening to everything. I've just been on camera coaching all day, so I'm <laughs> finding it easier just to observe a lot of this and just really enjoying this conversation. It hurts my brain because it's like everything about the way I live and operate being pulled up. But yeah, no, it's, it's so important that we do actually digest this rather than take everything we do and say for granted, like the whole investing money back into your business thing is a big one for me. I've been doing that consistently and look at my profit and I'm like, I wonder how much I could have just not done and just done yeah. less and more at the end of the day. Yes. So it's a big one. Yeah. Ellen, that reminds me of a conversation that I had. This was years ago, but it's like, uh, there was, it was in a mastermind group and there was a woman who had this super successful business and she was paying herself well, but not like an extraordinary amount of money. I think she paid herself like $150,000 the yeah. year before. Um, and someone else in the group said, there are two ways to make $150,000 a year. You make $150,000 a year uh, running an organization that makes a million dollars a year or $500,000 a year, or you can make $150,000 a year running a business that makes $200,000 a year, right? That you have so many fewer expenses and so much less complexity that you really only need $50,000 in operating expenses. And it was just like this light bulb went off in her eyes when this person said that. And uh, I think about that often. There's an easy way to make $150,000 or $200,000 or whatever it is. And then there's a hard way to do it. Uh, It's not that the hard (laughs) way is wrong, but if you're choosing the hard way, you should know that you're choosing the hard way. Yeah, at least they're the alternative, like you say. And when you're on that rat race, it feels like the next level and you're paying for all this software and complexity. When actually, I don't know, when I first started my business, people would message me back to my emails and book a coaching session by email. And now today there's seven steps. <laughs> yeah. And I can track yes. my image better, right? Like I've got data, but data doesn't pay the bills. No. <laughs> Thanks, Ellen. Anyone Thanks. else? All right. We will go ahead and wrap up. If you haven't gotten me your reflection from this last week yet, no problem. Get it to me when you can. I am did a bunch of feedback over the last two days. I think there's a couple more outstanding that I need to do. So if you haven't gotten feedback, that's why. But otherwise, I look forward to continuing this conversation next week. And let me know if you have any questions or need anything in the meantime. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye.